Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There can be a huge over-identification with whatever the title is. So it's not, I am depressed, it's I am depression, right? Or I'm not anxiously attached, I am anxious. When we start saying I am statements, that's super fucking scary, right? That's where people lose the ability to change their mind. Critical thinking kind of goes out the window because now I'm identifying, right? I'm self-identifying with this label. Hello, lovers. Welcome back to Open Late, a Soul Fire production. I am your host, Jessica Esfandiari, and today I have with me Lindsay Locke. She is the host of Get Psyched which is a podcast all around um, relationships and her view through her lens as a therapist. And I can't wait to dive into this conversation today. We had a chance to talk last week. Lindsay and I got to know each other for the first time. And we're going to do a little bit more of that today. This conversation is going to be around all things um, attachment styles. Maybe we might dip into some trauma and also... Um, I think it's really interesting. Lindsay has a view on sex addiction that I think is a very healthy conversation to have um, because as many of you know, my listeners know that I have um, past relationships where there was a history of sex addiction and we're going to talk about so much. So um, <laughs> we'll dive right in. But first, welcome to the show, Lindsay. And I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the audience. Awesome. Well, Thank you so much. I'm really excited about this conversation. I know after hours, I felt like we had barely scratched the surface. So I'm really excited to chat more and go a little bit deeper on some of the topics we dove into. Um, a little bit about me. You know how many podcasts I've been on? I'm still not very good at the elevator pitch, but I will do my best for the open late fan base. Um, I host a podcast called Get Psyched, like you mentioned. I noticed that as I was going through school, I was I was becoming a therapist. As I was on my own journey, I was having so many awesome conversations with people that were just igniting my world and kind of shining a light in corners of myself, of society that I didn't even know existed. And I remember having this thought to myself, uh, I'm not a great storyteller right? I actually feel like I've done our ancestors a really big disservice by not being better at telling stories. But I was finding that I wasn't able to communicate what I was hearing to people after the fact, as well as I would love for my friends or people that I'm trying to touch to just be a fly on the wall for these conversations. Mm. So that was initially and still is kind of the backbone of Get Psyched, talking to other therapists, other healers, people in the mental health physical health, wellness space, um, and just having open conversation to where people can start to think critically about some of the topics that we bring up. Um, I'm sure something we'll get into later is, you know, we all have these narratives and we all have these stories we tell ourselves day in and day out. And we don't often pause to ask ourselves, where did that story come from? Is that even my story? Am I living out some, something like 
Disney princess or some societal norm that really doesn't fit me. And so through my work with clients, through my work on the podcast, um, my therapy practice, my goal is really to help people come back home and get curious about their own their own stories, hold on to what they want, keep what they want, and release what isn't. And so I'm excited to talk about that in the context of sex today. I, I don't know that I've done a podcast episode on that before, so I'm super excited. I'm really excited too, and I, I love what you're sharing about the power of a story because what we constantly tell ourselves and tell people about who we are through our experiences, we are actively shaping our lives. And, um, you know, part of, part of your story is like wanting to help people make their lives better, right? Through that's, that's why anyone would go to therapy. Has that always been your story? I'm curious, what made you want to get into therapy? Did you just grow up like, I want to be a therapist. I want to help people. I, I like love dissecting the mind and psychology. No, it was not that at all. In fact, I thought I was going to, I loved to argue. I loved to be right. I didn't like the idea of curiosity. I was like, give me the facts. Let me argue them. I'm going to be a lawyer. From the time I was a small child, my mom was like, you're going to be a great lawyer because you love to argue. So such a 180. Um, when we kind of talk about, you know, we, we got a little woo on, on Get Psyched also, and I'll go there. I had, you know, big... Saturn return vibes. I had every course correction ever. Um, I think life and our bodies whisper to us for a really, really long time. And then all of a sudden they fucking yell at you because you weren't mm -hmm. listening. Right. Yeah. So I found myself going through a breakup. I had just lost my dad. Um, I got really, really injured competing. And at the time I was a competitive athlete. So everything I identified with, my partnership, my athletic career, my, you know, what I thought my family was just fucking crumbled. Mm. And while I was sitting there, it actually gave me time to pause and be, I think there's only a couple of times in life that everything is stripped and it feels like such an abandonment. It feels like such a loss and you do grieve that. Um, but the beautiful part of that or the reframe in that is that you then get to intentionally rebuild the way you want. And there's not many times in our life that we actually get to be intentional about our next project, right? Because when you're in the project, your blinders are on, you're not even looking at other opportunities. And so all of a sudden I found myself bedridden, broken up with, going through loss and was like, wow, how, like everything I'm doing if my, if my current life is a reflection of what I am doing, I'm doing something completely wrong. Um, cause I was living a life and in a reality that I didn't like, and I was going too fast to realize I didn't like it. Um, and so we can dive into this later as well, but, um, I grew up, my parents were divorced. My mother is single mother, addict, alcoholic. Um, and to be completely honest, my launch into therapy was like, or, or becoming a therapist was I want to figure out what's wrong. Like, why can't she get sober? What can I do? How have I been failing as someone in this system to keep her from getting sober, right? I want to understand. I want to understand. And anybody who is listening that is a therapist um, can probably attest that your master's program, sure, you learn how to diagnose. You learn how all the clinical things, how to cross your T's, dot your I's. 
but you learn more about yourself. They hand you a shovel on the first day and you start digging. And every time you turn in a paper, every time you take a test, every time you learn a new theory, you dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I think that that's a really long way of answering your question. No, I didn't want to be a therapist. I actually wanted nothing to do with it. I didn't like when people would ask me, how do you feel about that? Be like, feelings aren't facts. Fucking move forward, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's been a crazy kind of redirect in my life. Yes, this is wild. Like having just really gotten to know you, you know, in the last couple of weeks to hear that you wanted to be a lawyer is wild to me. And I also love the way that you approach this, you know, huge monumental shift in your life in a way of like, okay, great. I get to write my own story from scratch at this point in an intentional way. Um, and it's interesting that what you shifted to first was what sounds like major self-exploration and excavation. Because I think for most of us who get into uh, like a healing profession or helping profession um, or, you know, like mental health profession, it really is because we've had our own work, we've had our own healing process. And now that we feel we've either up-leveled or gotten to a certain place where we want to turn around and help people that are going through exactly what we went through. At least that's that's how it's been for me and a lot of people that I talk to. And so I'm curious for you, was it just um, across the board, you started helping clients and then notice trends or did certain uh, people seek you out for things that felt like they started to trend? Because I know you work with a lot of couples and it sounds like you do a lot of, you know, stuff in the realm of like sex therapy. Um, yeah. Um, so funny enough, when I was going to school, I was working in addiction treatment and I was not a therapist. I was uh, actually a fitness counselor. I launched fitness programs inside rehabilitation, substance abuse centers, right? Rehabs. And what I found was I was working with people's bodies. And for anyone that has listened to any podcast or read any book or read any research recently about trauma, it's all stored in the body, right? And it's all stored in the emotional brain. And I was having one-on-one -on -one sessions. Yes, I would teach fitness. And with the intention of these one-on-one -on -one sessions, it was supposed to be you know, teach people the basics of nutrition, find out if there's any injuries, kind of destigmatize some of the fitness practices that we're doing. So we're doing functional fitness, kind of CrossFit based fitness and yoga. And what it was turning into was people just unloading trauma, telling me their childhood trauma, telling me their sexual trauma, telling me their relationship and familial trauma. Um, and here I am right? With no other credentialing other than the fact that I'm a fitness coach and I've been doing this forever. And I'm writing this data on the sessions that I'm having. And so one day I get called into the clinical director's office and I'm shaking. So I'm like, fuck, like what, why am I right? Like this guy signs off on everything I do, what's going on. And, uh, he goes, Lindsay, I know that you said you wanted to eventually go back to school, get your degree, your master's in counseling psychology and you're getting data that other counselors aren't getting. And to this day, I can't attribute if that's just like, I was the one person at the center that wasn't like, get sober, get sober, get sober. 
I was something else, like a safer, softer place to land for somebody that might be a little bit um, treatment resistant. But I, I agreed. I was like, I'm sitting in these sessions and massive amounts of trauma are coming up and I'm just holding it. I don't know how to release it. I don't know how to combat it. I don't know how to talk a client through it. I can just sit and give them unconditional positive regard, which is incredibly healing in the therapy space, but I needed more tools. So I went to school immediately uh, with the idea that I was going to set out and save the world from addiction and do all these things. And as I was there in every class, whether it was dance therapy or addiction or community mental health, every single class talked about sex and every single class talked about sex in a different way. And with every client I've had, whether they are coming in for addiction or for couples counseling or for their own journey, I talk about sex with every single client out there. Um, and so as you, as you work your way towards licensure, you have to be supervised for 3,000 hours, which is nuts. Anyone who has coached or done anything, you're like, 3,000 hours takes a long fucking time. Um, but in during that, I my individual supervisor right out of school um, was incredible. Her name's Melissa Fritchley. She's done a lot of podcasts. Um, she also wrote the Conscious Sexual Self Workbook, which is incredible. I'd love to talk to you about that a little bit. Um, and she was my individual supervisor for hundreds and hundreds of hours. Um, and so to answer your question, I think that we attract the people that we're supposed to help. And we might not even know what that help looks like. Um, and so, like I said, clients that have come to me for a wide variety of issues, sex always plays a role in it. And I think being a soft, safe place for that person to land and really um, talk about something that we've been told not to talk about, or that we only talk about in private, or that is a scary, shameful thing to talk about, um, gives you, you know, one leg up in the therapeutic world. Cause there's a lot of, we all have our own stories around sex. So there's a lot of clients and a lot of counselors that feel really kind of funny talking about the subject themselves. Yeah. Was it, um, was it hard for you to dive into the subject? Was your upbringing around sex and sex education super positive or did you have, you know, I know a lot of women that I talk to have a lot of shame around this issue. Um, and I don't know if that's had, had been the case for you and why you were attracting, um, because I do believe that like, we're also, you know, attracting the people that we can help based on like what we've grown through. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that I still constantly write my sexual story, um, and constantly bounce up against triggers that I'm like, Ooh, that feels kind of crunchy. I didn't know that existed. Um, and kind of my first dive, I'll bring it back up. My first dive into this was doing Melissa's workbook doing, and it was before she was my supervisor. It was actually doing her workbook and by the grace of God, she lived in Santa Cruz and that's where I was practicing at the time. And oh, she wow. could be my supervisor. And, um, and I went to all of the lectures and all the things that she put on. And because it wasn't, there was just so many questions that were so basic in that book that people had never asked me. Right. Or that, um, you know, where do your thoughts about sex come from? And kind of, you know, circling back to what we were talking about in the beginning, how much of that is your story? Mm -hmm. Is any of it yours? Is it just stuff that you've taken on from other people? And so, um, no, my house wasn't super sex positive. Um, I think as most millennials might, might report, um, all of my sex ed in school was abstinence based. Um, 
my mom had had sexual trauma and had had, um, you know, made her own decisions in, in her sex life um, through her late teens and early 20s. And though I think she was doing the best she could with what she had, and it was never a story of like, don't have sex, but it was always a story of like, you have something really special to give to somebody, make sure that that person's worthy of what you're giving them. Um, so I appreciate that because there was no conversation on your losing, right? I don't like the term losing your virginity. It's like, well, that feels kind of unconscious and like something I wouldn't want to like tell my son or daughter to do, but it did make me really afraid, right? Because though I was getting the narrative of you have this special thing that you can give somebody, that was where the conversation ended. I never knew, well, how does it feel to make that decision? Or what does my body tell me to do in that? In that, And I think that with abstinence-based sex education, there's this goal, right, of keeping kids, quote unquote, safe, but it's all fear-based, right? It's like, I always think of the mean girls thing when he's like, if you have sex, you will get pregnant and die, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. that's how so many people's sex education is. And so from the minute we start talking about sex in an open forum, it's through fear, it's through shame. And I think it teaches us on a somatic level to be really afraid in our bodies. Mm -hmm. Because when you're getting those messages at 14, 15, 16, and your hormones are doing what hormones do at that age, you're like, well, crap, I have all these urges, which are completely normal. And I'm, I'm supposed to be afraid of it when I feel this way, right? Like bad consequences are going to happen when I feel this. And so I think what kind of happens in that is then we do get teens and young adults and people exploring sexually for the first time that associate sex with fear or anxiety in the body. And so all of a sudden, if they're in a sexual situation that's scary or is anxiety provoking, that's normal, right? Like that's how my body has responded to the topic of sex for so long. And so I think that this abstinence-based and fear-based tactic of keeping kids safe is actually teaching kids that feeling fear in their body during sexual experiences is a normal thing to do and how much different that narrative could be if we changed it to pleasure and safety and desire and what a different landscape that might provide for kids and yes. adults. Yes. Oh, I love this conversation so, so much because I am all about somatics. And like you said, we got, we got into talking about energy on your show and everything you're saying is like, it makes so much sense to me and to so many people that I have these conversations with and yet nothing is really changing or at least I'm not seeing it yet in the school system, which I'm hoping that by us having these conversations and continuing the work that we're doing, it like bleeds into all of these other areas and more conscious parenting at least. So parents are talking to their kids about it because you're absolutely right. I just did an episode with my friend Courtney V, who's a pelvic floor specialist, and we went into talking about how from such a young age, um, girls and, and boys um, will tense and tighten in these areas because you're taught to deny those urges and to like, you know, think that your body's betraying you in some way, especially if you grew up in a religious household. Like I didn't grow up in a super religious household. However, I grew up in sort of a Catholic um, school <laughs> culture. And so, yeah, it was abstinence-based and it was also a sin, right? If it was like outside of marriage. And so from such a young age, you are thinking that 
your body is sinful and mm -hmm. or dirty she's and like, wrong. Yeah. And she's like, I see so much. Um, so I see so much in women's bodies who have never even had children that have major pelvic floor issues. And it's likely because of all the tensing and tightening um, that we're experiencing in our everyday. And not just because of, you know, sexual trauma or experiences that are uncomfortable. It's it's across the board. But I think what you're hitting on, um, it's so important for people to hear that if we taught from a place of pleasure and we taught from a place of abundance, right, when it comes to sex, that as women, we're not losing something or even for boys, for, for young men um, and everything in between, right? It's like, I always teach that love multiplies, right? It doesn't divide. It doesn't subtract, um, you know, and that might not be true for everyone in their relationships, but being a polyamorous person, I think that it adds. And so as I'm sharing my love, whether that be romantic or erotic or even platonic, it's as I'm giving it with more people, I have like more to give. That's just the way that I've always been. And so, yeah, just wanted to pull on the thread of hearing you say, you know, you're losing something like losing your virginity. Um, my mom, like bless her, she was doing the best she could, but she would always say to me, when you have sex with someone, you're giving them a piece of yourself and you can never get that back. That's like such a scary thing for a teenage girl to hear. Uh, and I didn't think about that until this conversation with you today, but it's true. We're being, all of this messaging becomes a part of our story and what I really hear in this conversation is like, there can be a story of lack or there can be a story of abundance. And so, I don't know, I would love to maybe take this into how can we look at sex in more of a way that is abundant and that's pleasure focused. Um, and we're both, you know, women of, uh, I think, a similar age. I'm probably a little bit older than you, I think. Um, but like, what would that look like if that were our story? And if like, that was gifted to us and given to us in our education? Like what could our sex lives look like? And maybe you've worked on some of this with your clients. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to, and I, I have my clients journal a lot. They'll journal in session. Um, I'll even take time where I'm like, Hey, take 10 minutes. Let's just write on this. Right. Um, and just allowing yourself to tap into that place. Like when I say sex, what comes up in your body? right? Do you feel a tightness in your chest? Do you feel butterflies in your stomach? Do your hands get clammy? What goes on, right? Like, let's just somatically track what's going on in my body because my body's, my brain doesn't, tries to make sense of what's going on, but doesn't always understand it, right? Like we've got logic mm -hmm. on one side, we've got emotion on another area. And a lot of times they don't talk to each other. And if I can focus in, right? So let's use the tightness in the chest, right? If I can focus in on that area and maybe we do a guided meditation, maybe we, you know, really bring ourselves into that present moment. And I give that part of voice, right? I can reach in and externalize it. I can hold it in my hand. I can set it in a chair. I can vision myself in my chest with that part, whatever it is. And I start an open dialogue with it, right? What are you trying to tell me? When I feel this in my chest, how are you trying to keep me safe? What are you trying to communicate? And a lot of times, right, feelings, it's kind of like, um, I've got to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And in mm -hmm. therapy, especially talk therapy, you're talking the talk. But if we bring people into their bodies, they're going to recognize a time when like, oh, my body felt like this in another time. Or I learned 
this from this experience, right? And we can start to really deconstruct where some of these stories are coming from. And the fact that these parts can come up with only the intention to keep us safe, with only the intention to better our lives. But if these parts came on the scene when we were really young and had immature ways of, you know, kind of interacting with the world or finding a coping mechanism, it's not that that didn't work. It's just that we didn't have any other tools at the time to really pick from. And so we can start figuring out where these stories came from. And I can start to ask, does that feel true to you? Right. As you say that to me, as you start to repeat to me what this part is saying, does that ring to you as true or does it just ring to you as something like, oh, I've told myself this for a really long time, but I don't know that it's actually mine. And then we can start reconstruct. Okay, well, how do you know your body's feeling pleasure? Right. Let's dive into that part. How would it be if we started associating some of our new stories with this pleasure story, right, with this somatic pleasure response? And can we start kind of bridging the mind and body to start working together on, on recreating this story. And then I think to touch on another part that you brought up, um, you know, how can we work from this place of abundance instead of something's being taken away or I need, this needs to be perfect or my sex life and my marriage has to look like this. Um, really inviting in play. Like when the fuck did sex have to get so serious? Right. You know, like, to go back to that childhood, right? To go back to that wonder when we were kids and everything was sensory and everything was funny and everything, right? Like as a kid, if I felt discomfort, I'd move into pleasure, right? I wasn't like, oh, I feel discomfort. I'm going to keep doing this thing, even though it feels weird in my body. So there's nothing inherently wrong with pleasure until we start to define what the pleasure is supposed to look like or supposed to feel like or any of these things, right? We can just kind of follow it and play with it. Maybe we have a different definition of what it means for us. Right. I. Oh my gosh. This is all so yummy, everything that you're saying. It's so true. We, we really make things, I think, speaking in general, but like I know I, th I make things way too serious in my life and always stepping back into thinking about, well, what would like the kid version of me do leads me to the best place, right? Because as kids, we are so pure. And I think as we grow up, we are taught, we're, you know, we're narrative in nature as humans. We are just storytellers. That's like our age old way that we create legacy. And so we're always trying to create meaning out of something like, what does this mean? And I know that was pretty limiting for me. And when I first opened up my marriage, it was like, oh, well, what is this going to mean about me? What is this going to say about me? You know, we're talking a lot about bringing it back to childhood, right? Bring, bringing things back to play rather than making them so serious. And I think, you know, for anybody who's listening, we all can agree that a lot of our trauma comes from childhood. And then that tends to play out in our relationships as we get older, in our most intimate relationships, usually these styles of, of attachment and relation come out. And so I know you work on this a lot with your clients and we've never done a deep dive into attachment theory on the show. If you want to give a little overview of what they are, and how people can work with them, that would be super helpful. Yeah. Um, so there's secure attachment, right? Which we're all, we're all striving for. If my person, my partner, my caretaker leaves, I have this knowingness inside that they'll come back, 
right? That I will have that safety in that reunion. Then there is anxious, which is more, you know, insecure attachment, anxious attachment. And there's, there's a lot of studies around this, but what I'll kind of bring in to, to give a visual to, to the listeners is they did research on attachment styles and what they would find, what they would do is they would have the caretaker in the room with the infant, with the toddler, the child, and they'd be playing, they'd be doing their thing. And then the caretaker would leave and the researchers would observe what happened when the caretaker left and then what happened upon that reunion. The secure kid, the caretaker left, they might've noticed it. They didn't like it too much, right? Their, their person's gone, their safety in the world is gone. Then the person came back and was like, oh, all is good in the world. I can keep playing and doing my thing, right? With the more anxiously attached kid, um, even the playing in the beginning, there's a lot of, the best way to kind of explain it is the anxious kid thinks the world is very unsafe. Um, and the world is unsafe. That's our job as parents is to teach our children that the world is unsafe and that they're strong enough to face that world. And that if when it gets too unsafe, they can turn around and they always have our support and our love, right? Um, but with the anxious kid, it's like everything is unsafe. So when they were playing, there's kind of some like, looking to mom or dad or caretaker for approval, like, is this okay to play with? Um, and then when the caretaker would leave, it was just like the wheels came off, right? Like tantrums, the kid is crying. And then upon returning, instead of, right, with a securely attached kid that kind of comes back to homeostasis, this kid can almost not be consoled, right? Mom or dad or caretaker will be holding it. The kid's still crying. There's no real safety restored in the body. Then we get to avoidantly attached kids, right? They're like, here I am. I'm going to raise my hand. My name's Lindsay and I am a recovering avoidant. They are so in their own world, right? They're playing. They're probably not even checking to see if the caretaker is like watching them or doing, they're just like in their world, right? Caretaker leaves. It might piss them off a little bit, but they're like, whatever, I'm still going to do what I'm doing. The caretaker comes back and the kid is like, okay, like what, why, why are you trying to pick me up now? Right? Like, let me play with my choo-choos. So we've got, and then there's disorganized, which we don't see often. Um, that's kind of when we fall into the space. When we see it manifest later, we see more like personality disorders and things. And the disorganized attached kid is just like, there's no safety. There's a desire to attach. The kid doesn't know how to attach. So you might see the kid, um, you know, when the caretaker comes back crying and crawling, but like crawling backwards, there's just some kind of confusion, right? Like, you're not a very safe person, but I also want your love. But I also like, I'm so inside myself, almost that like schizoid place that all of my attachment is disorganized. So when we're talking about relationship attachment and um, this, you know, kind of comes up more in couples therapy, the three that we're really working with are secure, anxious, and avoidant. What's interesting is that if we can keep in our heart and keep in our soul and our knowing that as humans, right, from an anthropological level, from an evolutionary state, we want to connect. We all do. It's what's propelled our species forward. There's a lot of, you know, fear of being, if I'm not attached to this person, right, like when we go back to kind of hunter-gatherer society, I won't survive without this person. Um, and so oftentimes the anxious has a narrative that love, attachment, connection is something I need is pivotal because I think of kind of anxiously attached kids as the ones that had the helicopter parent that did everything for them. 
So now in my um, romantic partnership later in life, if you're not doing everything, if you're not applauding or validating everything I'm doing, am I, you know, is it, am I doing it? Are we, are, are we still in love? Are you still going to be here? If you leave, can you text me all the time? So I know you're coming back, right? There's this very anxious vibe to it. The avoidant, even though, and this is me again, talking from my own experience and from, yeah, I'm a classic avoidant also. Well, I was someone that was like, fuck you. I'm going to leave before I can get left. Right. We go back to our attachments. My mom was an addict, so I didn't have that safe place to rest. Sometimes I did, but not often enough. There wasn't that good enough parenting to let me know that I had a soft place to land. So I was like, Mm. well, the world is dangerous, but if I'm more dangerous, it won't fuck with me. Right. Like I'm going to just kind of take it, take it as I can. And so at the, at the core of that though, right. I'm still on a genetic level programmed to want to connect to people. Mm -hmm. And it feels really fucking scary to do that when my narrative is like that, well, they're going to leave. Right. So why would I set myself up to be hurt if the partner is going to leave? And so lo and behold, how great would it be for an avoidant person to match up with an anxious person that tells me all the time how much they won't leave and how much they love me and all of these different things. Right. So then they come into couples therapy because he or she wants nothing to do with me and he or she wants everything to do with me and we can't fucking figure it out. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, well, of course that's what happened because you confirmed each other's bias about love and who you needed to pair up with to make sure that you didn't ever have to change your narrative. You never had to take a critical look at, is this my story? And so when we get into couples therapy, identifying the attachment style and identifying how are we going to find communication skills that don't trigger you to leave or me to get anxious and can we start working with each other to work towards more, more secure attachment? And obviously that just like accentuates tenfold when we start bringing sex into it. Yes, of course, because it, it heightens everything. And I think most of what we do in relationship gets magnified by the act of intimacy, right? Do you find that when couples find out their attachment style or even individuals find out their attachment style, it tends to be empowering information or expansive information for people or does it, um, cause I, sometimes I find that like when you know a little bit about yourself, but you tend to label it, then it could almost put you in a box. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, having two classically, um, unsecure attachments, if we kind of leave disorganized off the, off the table a little bit for most people. Um, the way I look at it, it could be a little bit limiting. Yeah. And I think that people, whether we're talking about attachment styles or the Enneagram or diagnoses, there can be a huge, huge over-identification with whatever the title is, right? Whatever the diagnosis is. So it's not, I am depressed. It's, I am depression, right? Or I'm not anxiously attached. I am anxious, right? And so when we start saying I am statements, that's super fucking scary, right? That's where people lose the ability to change their mind. Critical thinking kind of goes out the window because now I'm identifying, right? I'm self-identifying with this label. And that can be super helpful until it's not, right? With everything that's light, there's a shadow to it. So it can be helpful because it can help me start to really identify patterns in my life. 
oh, fuck, like I do always leave people before I get left. Why do I do that? Right now where it can get kind of shadowy is like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm avoidantly attached. So that's just not going to work for me. <laughs> and it's like, Ooh, okay. So you don't want to rewrite that narrative at all. Yeah. You don't want to become more secure in your attachment so you can experience yourself more as a whole and look at yourself in a holistic way. And I'll go there because I know that you've gone there on other shows, but that's what they're finding with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy right? Is it's less about the substance itself, like what it's doing on a physiological level. And more so, um, I think the Forbes article uh, put it really nicely. They said, is it, is it about the MDMA or is it about this idea of meeting God? Right? Um, am I having this peak experience? Am I having this somatic experience that's going to allow me to change the way I think about myself or the way I think mm-hmm. about my trauma or the way I think about others? And for so many people, when they use, you know, psychedelics and have either a healer or a therapist or a shaman or how, whoever it is that you, you do that with, um, that's informed in these ways, when our identity shifts and we feel that shift in our, you know, go back to the somatics, we feel that shift in our bodies. You can't take that knowing away from us. Right. I now know that there is a different way to think. I now know that there is a different way to feel because I have felt it in my body. And it's very, very similar with these diagnoses, right? And these these labels is okay. Am I identifying too far with this label that it's actually impeding my ability to to grow or to critically think about, you know, what what the patterns are in my life? Right. And to like step into being an observer of myself and and have the ability to reflect on my experience, my past experience, so that I could write a different future if I want to. Um, And I love that you bring up, you know, psychedelic therapy or psychedelic assisted therapy, because I always um, try at least my best to remind people and people that I work with, um, you can have the monumental like meet God ego death, ego dissolution, whatever it is. And and it does changes us on a somatic level. It can totally reprogram the way your, your brain is wired and your, you know, everything is, you know, your neurotransmitters, everything's firing and wiring. You can have this monumental shift, right? This paradigm shift. But if you don't integrate, if you don't then take action based on your new knowledge or your new knowing, like deep inner knowing, and start to make those drastic changes in your life to match up with your experience, the memory is going to do what the memory is going to do. And then it becomes this, you know, fun, amazing, life-changing, mind-blowing experience. But a lot of times people won't take the work into their daily lives. And then it just becomes this really cool experience, but not, um, not something that you take with you every day. And that's why I think therapy is so powerful, valuable, instrumental in the healing process and like goes hand in hand with integration um, with anything, not just psychedelics, but even if you have a mind-blowing sexual experience, like, you know, uh, if you have the most wild night of your life at like a play party and then you don't allow that to change your daily pleasure practice or your relationship with your husband or whatever it might be, it's going to be this thing that you like put in a box and put on the shelf. Um, 
to like maybe never be seen or heard of again. And that's not for everybody, but I find that, you know, when people leave out the integration piece, that is like the biggest downfall that we have in that kind of work. And so I think working consistently with a therapist, it's really, it's better than any ayahuasca ceremony, any, you know, plant medicine or psychedelic thing that I've ever done. And I think that a lot of my listeners, I think would agree and are starting to, to learn that there's nothing wrong with like doing it and having that experience, but get the most out of it by the implementation. And I think to like, bring it back to attachment theory, it's like, yeah, where are you seeing this in your everyday life? And once you have the information about yourself, you know, that information is power to explore, to like press into your edges, right? That's like what the information is meant for. It's the same as like learning your sign, right? Like, or like learning your big three or learning your human design, right? This is all, it's just information and it's really what you do with it after um, that counts and that matters. I want to touch on one more thing before we wrap up today, because you talked a lot earlier about your work in, you know, addiction clinics. And I have experience with, you know, there's there's addiction in my family, you know, whether it be substances or alcohol. And I also attracted in my life a partner for three years who, you know, was a like a diagnosed, self-diagnosed sex addict. We never spoke again. But the interesting thing about the story is I felt very sexually deprived. There was a big disconnect in our connection, very little intimacy, but I loved him and we were best friends. We were great roommates, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was trying to have all the sex in all the places. And this was like in my mid twenties. And I like happened to find out this huge secret that he had where he had been sleeping with many other women for almost the entire time that we were together. And to be honest, I never really did anything with that. I, I saw it. It was like a sigh of relief when I found out because I had been unhappy for a long time, but I didn't want to leave because a lot of reasons, my self-worth conversation. And I felt like, you know, what kind of person leaves someone they love when that person's depressed and like can't find a job or whatever the stories were. And I've not really looked back and dissected that story of his or that how it's like been such a part of my story. I've, I've often you know, just felt like I wish him well. And I'm glad, you know, we're not together. And I hope that he got the help that he needed. Um, but we talked a little bit about this. And I, I kind of love your view on this addiction thing, because I think we label addiction, and then we walk away from it. Um, and I've been guilty mm -hmm. of that, because I'm in this culture of like, oh, okay, I guess he was a sex addict. And that's kind of not my problem anymore. Right. And then I, you know, meet the love of my life shortly thereafter. So um, maybe just for me, for my personal, uh, sort of desire to know here, what, what is someone experiencing when they are compulsively like wanting sex, um, but also feeling the need to lie about it and not own up to it? Um, cause I was like, damn, I would have loved to have threesomes or, you know, whatever it was. Right. I would have been then. introduced to this world what a lot been, sooner. Like, seriously. How come you were having sex with all these other people? They seem great. <laughs> like, uh, 
I'm joking because back then I would have not gone for an open relationship at all because we didn't have a healthy relationship. So I'm sure it would have triggered the fuck out of me if he, if he would have brought it up, I would have been like, no, but I'm really curious what your, because you've worked in this field for so long. Um, and you understand, you know, the way the mind works in a different way than I think I do, of course, and a lot of my listeners. So what's really going on when someone gets diagnosed as a sex addict? Yeah. I have a really hard time with diagnosing period, you know, kind of going on with everything we've talked about this. The show is it sometimes people over identify with the diagnosis. There's a lot of stigma that goes around with having quote unquote mental illness or any of these different things, let alone layer the label of an addict on top of that. The person's likelihood to actually get help for what's going on plummets. When we think about 12 step meetings, right? A-A-N-A-S-A for um, sex addicts. They have a success rate, right? labeling success as the person doesn't relapse of about five to 10%. Wow. And so if that is our leading way of treating addiction, why haven't we thought about this in a different light if it's not quote unquote successful? So I have a hard time labeling someone an addict. And I think a lot of that comes out of my own desire to help them more beyond what the tools we currently offer people in that space. I also think that with sex addiction, I, I treat it similarly as I would treat eating disorder, because if we want to go back to our abstinence-based conversation, I can tell someone, don't ever drink again. Don't ever use heroin again. You will be cured. And if we choose to look at it through the disease model, which that's another tangent I can go off on that I don't quite believe in the disease model. But if we align with the disease model, which is what the 12 steps are aligned with, the idea is if I, I am never actually cured, I can never actually move on from this. That's why they always identify as recovering, never recovered, right? Then the only way I can mitigate these symptoms is by not doing it ever again. I will always have this disease. I will always be an addict and I can never use in a social setting or in a, in a way that's not obsessive. Um, now, if we shift our view, instead of saying this is, you know, drugs and alcohol or sex are inherently addictive, right? We've all heard, if I do heroin once, I'm going to be an addict, right? Or if I, you know, do meth, I'm immediately going to have these like hooks and I'm going to crave it and I'm going to do all these different things. If we shift away from there, inherently addictive, if we shift away from there's a disease here and we shift more towards what experiences in your life led you to this compulsion. We start treating the underlying cause instead of mitigating a symptom. So with sex addiction and with eating disorder alike, in my opinion, and this can be totally different depending on who you talk to, we don't have the luxury of saying, never get an erection, never get turned on, Never, you know, like, right, with eating disorder, I can't tell you never to eat food again because you have a poor relationship with it. So instead, what tools can we look at? Can we look at what, why the the compulsion is there? Can we start treating the cause? Gabor Mate says it perfectly. When we change our mind from what's wrong with you to what happened to you, we can start to, A, have a lot more 
sympathy and compassion and understanding for that person's life experience, but B, start to treat the root cause of it. You know, one thing that you named in the beginning was my partner was a self-diagnosed addict. So was he a sex addict or did the diagnosis align with the decisions and the narrative that he had that like that made his cheating and your experience of him more acceptable because it was a disease that was out of his control. So if we want to align ourselves with that narrative, then we need to align ourselves with a treatment plan. Should we want treatment that aligns with that? I personally, if I were an addict, would not want to identify as an addict for the rest of my life or in recovery for the rest of my life. I want to, as therapists, as healers, our ultimate goal is to restore agency for our clients. Nothing about saying, hey, you are powerless to this substance or this act or whatever it is for the rest of time. Just don't ever touch it. That feels like I'm stripping them of even more agency Mm -hmm. instead of saying, let's understand what happened to you. What's the trauma there? Can we treat that? And then you can rewrite the story the way you want. Yeah, it really does put the power back in the person's hands and then, you know, they're responsible. And that's, I'm, first of all, Lindsay, you're so smart and I'm like so happy to have had this conversation with you because we covered a lot today and I love that it really comes back to everyone's responsible for their own experiences. I mean, you know, past a certain age, obviously you're not when you're, when you're a kid and you are sort of you know, under the, (laughs) under the supervision of your parents and they're doing the best that they can. But once you get to a certain age, you are 100% responsible for your life. 100% of the time. I believe that like wholeheartedly because I prefer to know that I have the power to change anything in any moment that I want to, um, the good, the bad, the beautiful. And I think that, our stories and everything that we tell ourselves really, you know, as we said in the beginning, it shapes your entire life. So to examine that consistently and to constantly be in a place of reflection, you know, as we've talked about an introspection and how can I know myself on a deeper level? Um, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's not lost on me that it comes from a place of privilege and or luxury to be able to do that because not everyone is in a place where they're out of survival mode. Some people spend a lot of their lives in survival mode. But for those of you listening, I hope that you're hearing like, yes, you know what? I can take charge of my life. I can take charge of whether it's my sex life or my mental health, um, my physical health, whatever it is. And, you know, there are plenty of therapists in the world like Lindsay who I think think the same way you do holistically. I love your view on addiction. Um, you know, you said it's controversial. I, I frankly, I mean, it might be in, in the medical field, right? And especially <laughs> in the addiction world. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to talk about it today because that's how I feel. And that's what I want my listeners to know and to um, just know, like you have the pen in your hand, you know, you write your own story. And so if you've listened to this today and you've gotten this far, maybe a takeaway, um, could be, you know, to sit and think about this and journal on it. You know, Lindsay brought up journaling so many times. Um, Where have you given over to an old story that doesn't work for you or a story that was just handed to you from, you know, your parents or 
even generational stories. Like we all practice traditions, right? Whether they be holidays, religious, cultural, um, maybe ask yourself, are they still working for me? Do they make me feel good in my body? We talked about that a lot today. You know, are they expanders for me? Or is it something that, you know, I don't really necessarily want? Is this something that you want to pass on to your children if you're going to have them? Um, and so I wanted to leave everyone just with a little bit of action items today and some tools to, to work you know, listening to these sessions into your life. So I'm all about integration, <laughs> even with my podcast. Even with the pod. I love that. Even with the pod. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, Lindsay, this has been so lovely. Um, I would love for you to share with anyone listening where they can find you, um, anything that you want at all to share. If you have anything cool coming up that you want to point people to. Um, biggest one we named at the very beginning, my podcast gets psyched. It's available pretty much anywhere you're going to stream a podcast. I do ask, and I'm going to, I'm going to shout you out too. If you're listening to this show and you're already in, you know, the iTunes, Apple podcast app, leave it a five-star rating and review. They go so, so far. So if you listen to this show, if you listen to my show, please leave a review. It's so helpful. You can also find me on Instagram. That's probably where I'm most, uh, present. I'm really trying the TikTok thing, but I, I don't, it's a lot. It's a lot to figure out. So I haven't figured out the dancing and the pointing quite yet, but you can find me there. Um, both are at Lindsay Taylor Lock. Um, and then I guess the only other thing that I will put out there is that I am opening slots in my practice. So I practice in California. If you are looking for somebody and you reside in the state of California and you're interested, shoot me a DM. We can talk and see if it's a good fit. And see if you'd like to be added to the, uh, to the practice. So Yay. thank you so much, Jessica. Oh my gosh. You're so welcome. This has been lovely. And I know that anyone who ends up working with you is in for such a treat because I think you have such a beautiful holistic view on how to improve your life, right? And to restore agency for people. I love that you said that. So we'll leave it on that note. All right, lovelies, have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next week. That's a wrap, you guys. And it was so much fun. Please don't forget to leave us a review on Apple. Tell us what you loved about the show and make sure you're following Open Late, the podcast on Instagram. America, we are endowed by our creator, with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.